Section 5 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics. Chapter 2. The Properties of Matter. Part 3. The examination of the properties of gases began naturally with the study of air. Similarly, the inquiries of the human mind into the characteristics of liquids began with an investigation of the properties of water. The story of Archimedes and the crown problem is probably the earliest historical record of the study of hydrostatics, though Pliny makes mention of a Phoenician who devised a highly ingenious scheme for transporting along the Nile two great columns of an Egyptian temple. The columns were rolled in huge cylindrical boxes drawn by oxen to the bank of the Nile. There the bank was dug away from under them until they rested on their ends, when two large scowls full of sand were floated underneath them. The sand was then thrown out, the boats rose, and the pillars took the place of the sand. No systematic study of displacement and pressure in liquids, however, was made before the time of Blaise Pascal. In 1653 there appeared his Traite de l'Equiver des Liqueurs, in which he enunciated the law known by his name, to wit, pressure applied anywhere to a body of confined liquid is transmitted by the liquid so as to act with undiminished force on every part of the containing vessel. Whereby, he said, it follows that a vessel full of water is a new principle of mechanics and a new machine for multiplying forces to any degree we choose. The hydraulic press is the direct outcome of Pascal's principle of transmitted pressure. The mechanical advantage of the machine depends simply upon the relative size of the surfaces at which the force is applied and the power produced. If, for instance, the piston of the pump has an area of 10 square inches and the press itself has contact with the water over a surface of 1,000 square inches, the result will evidently be a power of 100 times as great as the force. The pressure will move, however, only one one-hundredth as far as the pump piston, for force is indestructible. The particles of liquid being constantly in motion, it follows that, although every molecule attracts every other molecule in a vessel of water, yet some of the molecules constantly will be acquiring as a result of collision or temperature a speed which will carry them beyond the attraction of other molecules. This is what is meant by evaporation. The larger the exposed surface of the liquid, the greater the possible number of escaping molecules. This explains why water evaporates so much faster when boiling than when cool, for the free surface of the liquid is enormously increased by the presence of the bubbles. When a vessel of water is heated, bubbles of gas are first seen to collect around the sides and on the bottom of the vessel. These are bubbles of dissolved air, of which all water contains a certain proportion. As the temperature rises, the particles of air, owing to their increased molecular velocities, are forced out of solution, combining to form bubbles. When all of the air has been driven out, the water at the bottom of the vessel, owing to excessive heating, is vaporized bodily, and the phenomenon of boiling appears. The air dissolved in water gets into it in exactly the same way that water gets into the air, viz. by evaporation. Similarly, liquids dissolve in each other, as chlorine or alcohol in water. Pressure upon the surface of a liquid makes boiling more difficult. The movement of molecules in the liquid and the gas, air above it, will readily explain this fact, for as Robert Boyle showed in the case of gases, that under pressure they have a smaller volume, 
since the same number of molecules must still be there present, the molecules of gas above the liquid will be closer together and will leave less room for the molecules of the liquid to jump away from the surface. Following this reasoning, it is to be expected that if a vacuum exists above the free surface of a liquid, the latter will evaporate more rapidly. Such is indeed the fact, and a very pretty demonstration of it may be made thus. If a watch glass with a little ether in it be placed upon a drop of water under the receiver of an air pump, and the latter exhausted of air, it will be found at the end of a couple of minutes that the watch glass is frozen fast to the floor of the receiver. The ether evaporates so rapidly under these conditions that the temperature of the water is reduced to freezing. Otto von Guericke remarked that when he had connected a large exhausted receiver to the air space above a cask of wine, there followed a loud boiling noise, which continued for some time. He did not know how to explain the sound, but today, with the aid of experimenters of nearly three centuries, it would be accounted for by saying that the exhaustion of the air which rushed into the receiver caused such a rapid evaporation of the wine in the cask as to produce the phenomena of boiling. Exactly similar results may be produced by half-filling a thin bottle or flask with boiling water. If the flask be now tightly corked and inverted, the application of any cool substance, such as a wet cloth or the pouring of cold water over the bottom, will cause a contraction of the vapor-laden air within. This contraction, by relieving the pressure upon the surface of the water, will cause the latter to boil again. The operation may be repeated many times without reheating. The question naturally suggests itself in this connection. Why is evaporation a cooling process? An answer may readily be found in that extremely serviceable kinetic theory of gases. If the molecules of a gas are traveling, as has been pointed out, in open parabolic paths, these curving orbits are likely to intersect more frequently when the molecules are crowded and jostled together than when left comparatively free and untrammeled. A man walking along a country road feels far less conflict with the surrounding objects of nature than with the busy throng which hustle him and the cares that crowd upon him in the swarming city streets. His mental state is more placid, cooler. So it is with those entities called molecules, and the greater the expansion, the more marked will be the fall in temperature. The question may even be asked as to why a gas expands into a vacuum. For the present, an answer must be found in the equilibrium of forces and the fact that particles of matter, like the charged corpuscles of an electric current or the drops of water in a flowing stream, follow the path of least resistance and move in the direction determined by the sum of the forces acting upon them. On this basis may also be explained the familiar phenomena of capillary and osmose or diffusion in liquids, the fact that a lump of sugar, if allowed to stand for a while, will sweeten a whole glass of water without stirring. Evaporation is but an instance of the adjustment of forces to an equilibrium. When the air above a dish of water is confined by a cover, evaporation will proceed only until the vapor is saturated with the particles of water which have jumped out of the dish. When the point of saturation is reached, there will be as many molecules leaping back to enter the liquid as those which free themselves from its surface. Evaporation, therefore, will cease. In the same way, solids whose particles are evaporating from the surface may saturate the air around. If the air is confined, evaporation will cease at saturation. Camphor, which is carefully protected from air, will act for many months or even years as a deterrent to moths, 
but if left exposed the rapidity of its evaporation is shown by the fact that a piece of camphor brought into a room may be detected from any part of the room in a few minutes the exquisite odor of a bunch of roses will quickly perfume a large room and the perfume of flowers consists of the particles of matter being thrown off by evaporation not greatly unlike the phenomena of crystallization in the fixation of its molecular properties is magnetism one of the oldest observed physical phenomena pliny says the word magnet is derived from the name of the greek shepherd magnes who on the top of mount ida observed the attraction of a large stone for his iron crook it was also known to the ancients that artificial magnets may be made by striking pieces of steel with natural magnets but it was not until about the twelfth century that the discovery was made that a suspended magnet will assume a north and south position the compass said to have been introduced into Europe from China, appeared first about 1190. The incalculable value to the world of this discovery is patent. It meant scientific navigation, exploration, and the discovery of the new world. With Galileo in Italy, the originator of modern physics, may well be placed William Gilbert, the father of the magnetic philosophy. Gilbert was appointed by Queen Elizabeth her physician in ordinary, and she settled upon him an annual pension for the purpose of aiding him in the prosecution of his philosophical studies. His first investigations were in chemistry, but later, for 18 years or more, he experimented on electricity and magnetism. In 1600, he published his famous treatise, De Magnete, in which he showed, as a result of careful experimentation, that the compass points to the north, not because of some mysterious influence of the stars, but because the earth itself is a great magnet. In reading over the six books of this great work, one cannot fail to be struck by the variety of the author's accomplishments. He writes in Latin and intersperses his pages with frequent Greek quotations. He is familiar with poets, historians, philosophers, and discusses with clearness and fullness all the chemical and physical knowledge of previous ages. The work is truly monumental. It also contains Gilbert's own numerous valuable and costly contributions to magnetic science. First among these is his grand generalization, the new and till now unheard of view, that the earth is a great magnet, and he is not afraid to say that this novel view will stand as firm as aught that ever was produced in philosophy, backed by ingenious argumentation or buttressed by mathematical demonstration. Gilbert's contempt for the methods of the schoolmen crops out everywhere in his book. Why should I, he writes boldly, submit this noble and this new and inadmissible philosophy to the judgment of men who have taken oath to follow the opinions of others, to the most senseless corruptors of the arts, to letter clowns, grammatists, sophists, spouters, and the wrong-headed rabble, to be denounced, torn to tatters, and heaped with contumely, to you alone, true philosophers, ingenious minds, who not only in books but in things themselves look for knowledge, have I dedicated these foundations of magnetic science, a new style of philosophizing. Gilbert did not explain, nor has any satisfactory explanation yet been offered, as to why iron and steel are the only substances which exhibit marked magnetic properties. Nickel and cobalt are appreciably attracted by a strong magnet, but the other metals— copper, zinc, tin, lead, etc., show complete indifference to magnetic influence, while bismuth and antimony are actually repelled by it. 
In this unique restriction of its application to one or two substances, magnetism as a force stands alone. It is generally held to be due to a molecular adjustment. The fact that magnetic iron heated red hot and beaten loses its magnetism, that a magnet hung north and south and beaten likewise loses its magnetism, make it apparent that magnetism is due to the arrangement of the molecules of the magnetized body. The expansive tendency of the molecules of a gas under ordinary conditions of temperature and pressure is quite different from the behavior under light conditions of the molecules of a liquid or solid. There is every reason to suppose that the molecules of an unconfined gas would expand indefinitely into space. In accordance with current belief, the molecules of every substance are in motion. In the solid state, writes a prominent American physicist of today, it is probable that the molecules oscillate with great rapidity about certain fixed points, always being held by the attractions of their neighbors, i.e. by the cohesive forces, in practically the same position with reference to other molecules in the body. In rare instances, however, as the facts of diffusion show, a molecule breaks away from its restraints. In liquids, on the other hand, while the molecules are in general as close together as in solids, they slip about with perfect ease over one another, and thus have no fixed positions. This assumption is necessitated by the fact that liquids adjust themselves readily to the shape of the containing vessel. In gases, the molecules are comparatively far apart, as is evident from the fact that a cubic centimeter of water occupies about 1600 cc's when it is transformed into steam, and furthermore, they exert practically no cohesive force upon one another, as is shown by the indefinite expansibility of gases. A highly illuminating discussion of the actual motions of molecules in these three fundamental states of matter has recently been given by J.W. Richards, president of the American Electrochemical Society, in an article entitled Kinetic Molecular Energy. Dr. Richards writes, The conditions of molecular motion is chiefly determined by velocity, According to the velocity of the molecules, we have solids, liquids, and gases. Within the lowest range of molecular velocity, the movement of the molecules is oscillatory. We have a fixed relative position. The body has a size or shape. It is a solid. Within the next higher range of molecular velocity, the velocity is able to carry the molecules just beyond the reach of opposing forces. The molecules move in closed elliptic orbits, like the planets around the sun. The body loses its form and shape but retains its volume. It is a liquid. When the molecular velocity is raised still farther, the molecules move in open parabolic paths. The body not only has no shape or form but actually tends to increase its volume. It is a gas. If attraction is exerted between the molecules of a substance, it must be conveyed by some medium other than matter. This conclusion is involved in the hypothesis of the granular nature of matter for force acting at a vacuous distance is unthinkable, or at best incomprehensible. The cohesion of the molecules of a substance thus resembles gravity, which reaches across the enormous interplanetary spaces to grasp the masses of the planets and hold them in their courses round the sun. Like gravity also, the cohesive force which renders substances elastic does not seem to consist of material vibration or ether disturbances. Cohesion acts through infinitesimal spaces upon bodies infinitesimally small. Gravity spans distances immeasurable to guide a myriad of suns and systems. Yet both these forces are conveyed through a medium at once infinitely rigid, since it is non-compressible, 
and infinitely fine, since it is frictionless. The distinguished author of the electromagnetic theory of light, speaking of the characteristics of the ether, writes, The vast interplanetary and interstellar regions will no longer be regarded as waste places in the universe, which the Creator has not seen fit to fill with the symbols of the manifold order of His kingdom. We shall find them to be already full of this wonderful medium, so full that no human power can remove it from the smallest portion of space or produce the slightest flaw in its infinite continuity. It extends unbroken from star to star, and when a molecule of hydrogen vibrates in the dog star, the medium receives the impulses of these vibrations, and after carrying them in its immense bosom for several years, delivers them in due course, regular order and full tail, to the spectroscope. End of chapter 2